President and General Manager of Sonoma Raceway. We haven't gone too much on the racetrack executive side of the How I Got Here series this year yet, so I'm excited to sort of dive into that a little bit. And Steve Page was somebody who I really had no idea about his background at all. One of those people where he's been in his current position for so long, you just know him as that and never think, well, what did he do before this? But that's what I love is hearing stories like that and understanding people's background. This one I feel like I completely lucked into. It turns out to be a great story. I think you'll enjoy it. So let's dive right in and hear how Steve Page got to be the president and general manager of Sonoma Raceway. All right, everybody, I'm here with Steve Page, and we're in your office overlooking beautiful Sonoma Raceway, probably my favorite track to come to. So thank you for having me up here. It is my pleasure, and I get to look at this view every day. It normally doesn't have quite as many people in it. Yeah, that's but, cool. Uh, you can see the cars. You can. This is this is awesome. Yeah. So um, let's let's try to find out how you got to this point because this is a, a point. I've been, <laughs> been trying to figure that out myself. You know, <laughs> yeah. to actually try not to overanalyze it because the bubble might burst. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well. So did did you grow up around here? Did you uh, I, grow up interested in racing or anything like that? I I did not. I grew up in Monterey, which is about 150 miles south of here. Uh-huh. Uh, my father was an attorney down in Monterey Peninsula. Um, and I had the, the only experience I had with motor racing before the day I interviewed for this job was I had been to Laguna Seca when I was very young to mm-hmm. see a race. Um, it was a um, the old Can-Am series with Jim Hall and Mark Donahue and I didn't know what I was seeing. And, yeah. and then in high school, they used to hire high school kids to park cars there. So that was the in, the entire my entire motorsports universe. Okay. I'd never been to a NASCAR race um, so until I came here. Wow. Never so didn't follow the sport, didn't really know anything about it. What When you were growing up, what did you have aspirations of, of doing? Um, you know what? I bounced all over the place. I, um, my first real sporting event was um, uh, I was about seven years old. My dad took me to a uh, Giants game at Candlestick Park. And Willie McCovey hit a three-run home run with two outs in the bottom of the ninth to beat the Pirates. And it pretty much um, set the hook for me. I grew up as a diehard Giants fan. Um, and uh, I was um, – it became – uh, quickly evident uh, when I um, played my one year of Little League that I was probably a better candidate for the front office. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I, you know, I, the only sport I actually played competitively was tennis. I played on the tennis team in high school. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not sure I had a specific career aspiration. I always um, had a certain uh, attraction to events. I had you know, I, there was a lot of rock music that happened in the Monterey Peninsula, the Monterey Pop Festival. I saw Bob Dylan for the first time when I was about 10 years old. Wow. Um, and used to, um, you know, get jobs just, you know, ushering and um, working at rock concerts at the fairgrounds, things like that. So I think there was always a, I always had a certain attraction to the event activities, you know, event business. Um, but uh, I, I, 
my career has just been a, um, a whole succession of happy accidents hmm. that uh, if, if someone had told me or actually anyone I knew that I would be running a motor racing facility um, back when I was in high school or even in college, I would have been, would have told you they were nuts. Huh. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, uh, I graduated high school. I started off in college down in Santa Barbara, um, had a great time, um, got the, uh, got a letter from my dad at the end of my sophomore year that said, wow, this is, if this is your idea of going to college, then you're more than welcome to keep doing it, but um, you're going to pay for it yourself from now on. Okay, I see. So you're so having too good of a time. I was having a wonderful time, <laughs> um, but uh, I was not on a good trajectory academically. So I uh, used that as an excuse to, uh, to drop out of school uh, for almost two years, um, eliminated, did a lot of traveling, uh, eliminated a lot of... Uh, uh, potential career choices. Uh -huh. I spent six months selling women's shoes. Um, I sold Buicks. I worked as a gardener. Um, no kidding. I traveled across the country with with a friend in a in a van. We spent about three months getting across. Spent the summer getting across the country through the Southwest and the South and up the East Coast. And then he went back. He was one of my college buddies. He went back to go to school. And I. Um, wasn't ready to uh, give up the uh, the road, so I hitchhiked up to Maine because I, I was running out of money, and it was the potato harvest in northern Maine. Worked the potato harvest and then hitchhiked back to California. Wow. Um, hitchhiked all the way? Maine to California. Oh, my God. Um, and the last guy that picked me up, I was driving. It was uh, right around um, Halloween. was driving a um, truck full of Christmas trees. And hired me to drive Christmas trees uh, back and forth from Oregon down to San Francisco. And I lived <laughs> in a trailer on a Christmas tree lot and sold Christmas trees. Wow. Um, and at that point, I had actually somehow managed, I don't know how, with the grades I had to get accepted, transferred to Berkeley. Okay. So um, I, uh, what did I do? I spent a couple of quarters at Berkeley, went and spent summer traveling in Europe, went back and um, at the time... Uh, that would be the fall of 76. I'd always had an involvement. My family had always been involved in politics, democratic politics. Um, and um, a local attorney and someone who was very well known, uh, Leon Panetta, was running for Congress for the mm -hmm. fir his first time. I did some work on his campaign. He got elected. He took office in January. And um, so I was uh, um, a couple of quarters from graduating, went to do a three-month internship in Leon's office, right, as he was taking office. And um, as the internship was winding up, the guy who was our press secretary got accepted to go get his master's at Columbia Journalism School, so the job opened up. And I thought, what the heck? Wow. And um, I was complete. I had taken one journalism class in college. I was just phenomenally unqualified for the job and <laughs> somehow being in the right place in the right time I uh, uh, ended up in that job and spent three years on Capitol Hill as the as uh, Leon's press secretary wow so and what was being a press secretary on Capitol Hill like I can't even imagine the kind of demands that you had to deal with and it, things it like was that. a uh, it was a very stimulating environment it was a much it was a uh, it was a much better more collegial environment in D.C. This was in the late 70s than mm -hmm. it is now. Um, People would actually work together. Yeah, of. and Leon was a guy 
that everybody loved. I mean, just, um, you know, we were Democrats. And when you're on the staff, you know, you're all in and you, but Leon, some of his best friends he'd go out to dinner with and play basketball with were right-wing Republicans. And, you know, at the staff level, we couldn't, how can you hang out with those guys? But, uh-huh. but Leon was just one of these guys that crossed party lines. Everybody loved him. Bright, funny, articulate, swe- swears like a sailor, still does. Uh-huh. Um, and just had this warm personality that people gravitated to. So I, I was, he was, he was a freshman, and then you know, I was there into his second term. Um, but just one of the really highly respected people in that world and continued on through his career to continue to be. And so just a, I was in my early 20s. I think I was 22 when I got the job. Super stimulating environment. D.C., Capitol Hill, you'd, you know, work late nights, you'd work long hours. Um, but at that point in my life, you know, you could do that. And you went out and partied hard at night and you rolled back in the next day and you did it again. Wow. Um, but um, so I did that for three years and then finally realized I was two quarters away from a college degree. Really ought to go ahead and finish it up. And I, at that point, I think three years on Capitol Hill was about the... That that was I realized that was not the world I wanted to spend my career in. So, okay. um, moved back to California, finished up my last couple quarters at Cal. Um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I had a friend in the real estate business. Um, got my license, kind of worked with him for about six months at a time when the um, Real estate, uh, the interest rates were about 22%. So there was not a lot of real estate changing hands. And oh. I realized that just in order to feed myself, I had to get a night job as a bartender. So I, I could see real estate was also not going to be my future. So, so you're just sort of crossing things off the list. I, through and yeah, eliminating that's a long, long list. You include <laughs> everything I did in high school and yeah. restaurants and washing dishes. I sold fuller brushes door to door in high school. So wow. I did a lot of the... the if I actually filled out a full resume, it would take a pretty big piece of paper. It so, sounds like it. So um, you did even bartending, you said? Oh, yeah. No, I, bar- I bartended in college and then to you know, supplement the money I wasn't making in real estate. I, uh-huh. got a, I worked at a bar in San Francisco. Um, and um, in October, right at the end of the baseball season, Charlie Finley sold the A's to the Haas family, the family that owns Levi Strauss. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, I had... A, you know, sent letters, resumes to the, to the Giants. You know, that was my, I guess at a certain point, my dream job was to go work for San Francisco Giants. Okay. Um, I I think I have, I don't know if I kept all the rejection notices, but they, uh, they were not interested. <laughs> okay. Um, but the Haas family bought the, the A's. It was clear, Finley had run the organization into the ground. I think their attendance in 19... 19- 80 was like 350,000 for the season. For the season? The season. Wow. Team was horrible. Um, But they had this young um, rookie, uh, Ricky Henderson, and they had a lot of good pitchers, and Billy Martin was the manager. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went and showed up with my resume at the Oakland A's offices and happened to be there the day that their new VP of the business side of the operation, Andy Dolich was walking in the door with his briefcase in his suitcase, having moved there from the East Coast to take over the job. So I found out he was the guy. I bugged him. I drove him crazy. And in person? Well, in person, on the phone, oh. any way I could. Wow. And they finally um, hired me to sell season tickets door to door. 
and at the time there was all this excitement about the team. There were they had total seventy five season ticket accounts. You could actually sell someone a season ticket in the first row over the dugout. So <laughs> um, a, a bunch of us went out and did that. Uh, a few of us got hired full time, and then I ended up spending eleven absolutely wonderful years in that organization. Wow. Um, moving up, I started off running the season and and, um, and group ticket sales operation. Uh, moved into special events, ran the All Star Game in eighty seven. I just had to, you've got a lot of community-oriented stuff in Oakland and worked for probably the most amazing owners you could ever hope to have of a sports franchise. Wow. Um, totally committed to the community, saw themselves as the stewards of a community asset. They'd made their fortune selling Levi Strauss blue jeans, and this was something that they did. I mean, they ultimately sold it for more than they bought it for, but their first focus was how can we use this as a resource to elevate the community. And wow. It was just such an inspirational group of people to work for. Walter Haas, just probably one of the finest human beings I've ever met. Um, and uh, so I was there for 11 years, 11 great years. Wow. Were you there for the earthquake? I was there. Okay. Yeah, in fact, I um, was there. Oh, were you? Well, I was, there's a picture on the wall right there that uh, we can talk about when we get done. That's, yes. Wow. Um, although there's an interesting story behind that. That is a since this is not a visual medium, that is a, um, a six-foot-long picture of the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants lined up on the, uh, the baselines for the player introductions for Game 3 of the World Series. I got A friend of mine had that, and I had it replicated, put it up on the wall. Um, and, you know, everyone that comes in looks at the pictures and says, okay, well, I was right there when the earthquake hit. No, I was over here. Really? And... Um, about six years ago, Tony La Russa was our grand marshal, uh-huh. and I had him in the in in here. And I, uh, on Sunday morning before we went down for the pre-race ceremonies, I said, "Tony, look at that picture. You know, that's from the earthquake game." And he says, "No, it's not." Because they said, never "What are you talking about? Look, Game Three World Series." He says, "No, no, no. We never made it out for the player introductions before the earthquake. That's ten days later when we actually uh. played Game Three. <laughs> I said, Tony, you just screwed up a story I've been telling for <laughs> 10 years. That's so, funny. Anyway, uh, but I was there. I was there um, through for all three World, uh, World Series, 88, 89, 90. Wow. Um, it was just, those teams were amazing. I mean, we were the center of the universe. It was yeah. just such an incredible um, experience to go through. So That's so neat. Um, yeah, those are, I remember those teams well. Those were my teams growing up. I was... Eight, nine, ten years old around that time, I cried. I remember I cried uh, when the Dodgers uh, was at 88 when Kirk Gibson hit that home well, run. I was so. sitting right there over the right field uh, bullpen watching oh my gosh. Jose Canseco not even move his feet, just <laughs> craning his neck to watch it go over. Wow. I, it was a very mixed emotions because it was heartbreaking because we had that game in the bag. I mean, Canseco hit the grand slam in the first inning. We were up 4 nothing, and Stu was pitching a beautiful game. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I sat there saying we're losing this game, but I am I'm now seeing one of what will be one of the great moments in the history of sports. Yeah. And unfortunately, I have to watch it over and over again because <laughs> I don't know how many times a year it shows up back on TV. Absolutely. Gibson so pumping his arm as he goes around. Oh, I, I, it haunts me. Little um, <laughs> that, uh, the little fat guy running out of the dugout with his arms in the air. <laughs> I still have nightmares about that. So, how in the world did you go from? Uh, being part of the whole Bash Brothers era to 
um, getting involved in racing then? Uh, well, another right place, right time situation. Um, I, I've been, I was with the A's for 11 years. I had sort of reached a point where there wasn't a next move for me in the organization. And, um, you know, I had a family at that point, needed to figure out where to advance my career, and it wasn't going to be there. So I was recruited, interviewing. I spent better part of two years in different places around the country looking at different jobs. I actually interviewed with George Bush when he was the owner of the Texas Rangers. Wow. Um, they didn't hire me, so I didn't vote for him. <laughs> um, and um, Cleveland, Long Island, I mean, I can't, there's a long list of different organizations, but I always figured I'd, team sports was what I knew. I figured that's where I would stay. And um, One day, um, Andy Dolich, who was my boss, said, I just got a call from a guy who owns this racetrack up in Sonoma, Sears Point Raceway, and they're looking for a president. And uh, my first reaction was, I don't know anything about car racing. Yeah. Um, and my second reaction was, wow, Sonoma. <laughs> we actually had friends in Sonoma and spent a lot of time up here. And I always thought, well, this is someplace it would be great to live when we retire, when I retire. But there's clearly not a job in professional sports that would allow us to live here. And so I said, okay, maybe I need to listen to this bell that's going off in my head. So right. I came up saw this place in the state that it was in at the time, which was very, very rough. Huh. I mean, it was a really run-down facility. Your really? listeners cannot see that picture, but that is... I keep that there to remind myself of what this place looked like when I came to work here with wow. um, no infrastructure, run-down, a uh, few metal buildings, um, just a really... A, a, a terrific strip of asphalt that was fun to drive on and nothing else. Yeah. And so um, the owner at the time assured me that he had plans to invest a lot of money and to turn it into something. And I thought, I don't know if I like the job, but living in Sonoma and raising my family there, it's worth a shot. So, yeah. So I signed on. I came here in fall of 1991. 1991? You've been here that long? Yeah. Wow. Um, and as it turned out, I didn't have a relationship with the owner at the time um, he did not have the money to invest in the facilities and so it just became a real dead end and there was no we weren't making improvements it was just did not turn into what it was described to me to be and I was starting to look around at other opportunities and all of a sudden Mr. Uh, Bruton Smith steps in buys the track and um, you know one of the best days of my life when wow Speedway Motorsports bought this facility. It was at a time when there was a big wave of consolidation in the industry, um, and Bruton was someone who believed in building the premier facilities in, in the sport. So I was given the immediate mission to turn this place into something special. Wow. And um, we spent, of course, this being Northern California, we had to spend four years in the environmental process to get the permission to remodel an existing racetrack. But yeah. uh, once we got those entitlements in the year 2000, we went out and, you know, we've spent over a hundred million dollars of Bruton's money to turn this into what you see out the window now. And it's probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever been involved in. Wow. No wonder you so like to sit here and look out at it. It is. Um, we are, 
all of us, and we've got a lot of people on the staff who've been here through for, you know, nearly two decades that went through that process. And it is something that when you consider that that little farmhouse down by the uh, entrance, which is where we used to work, okay. that and a couple of double wide trailers where the PR and the marketing department worked, it was um, it has been a pretty dramatic change. Wow. And That's incredible. Uh, it's it is something we all take a great deal of pride in. Yeah. Well, uh, I always ask people about um, career path for others who would like to follow us. It sounds like your exact career path would be quite difficult to replicate, but I'm sure you, you do get people all the time who um, ask you, you know, hey, I'd love to get involved in racing or you yeah. know, the track side of things. Um, if somebody's listening to this or reading this, uh, how would you recommend that they go about getting a start these days? Uh, well, I, I talked to I actually talked to a lot of young people who are trying to get into the sports world. Um, and um, you know, there's a you've you've got to be persistent. You have to be open to probably the most important thing is to be open to opportunities that don't look like exactly what you were looking for, hmm. because that's kind of where I've ended up along the way. Um, you're not going to find your dream job the first door you walk into. Um, talk to lots of people. And everybody you talk to, ask them to give you three names of other people you can talk to. Build a, a, uh, a range of contacts with people in the industry. And don't go to people asking for a job. Go to people and ask them how they got in their job. Develop relationships. And um, you never know who you're going to hit it off with, who you're going to impress. And you might click with someone that doesn't have something available today. But three months from now, they might, or they might have a friend who does. And so building a network so that when that oddball opportunity pops out of nowhere, you are exposed to it and, um, and be flexible. Don't, uh, you know, I didn't, like I said, I'd never been to a NASCAR race when this job came up and said, yeah. well, maybe I can figure it out. So wow. That's, that's fantastic advice, actually. I hope people take that to heart because um, I've heard a lot of different people answer this question that might be the best of the year so thank you for that thanks for sharing that well it's not like I said you you just have to expand your vision as to what an opportunity can turn into because frequently what it is when you get there may not be what it can become yeah or it may open other doors along the way so yeah absolutely well Steve thank you so much for doing this I feel like I totally lucked into a fantastic story here I just was taking a shot in the dark didn't know all the layers to this so uh, I, I really appreciate it my pleasure it's always uh, I have it's kind of fun to revisit some of those days I bet thank you all right everybody so there you have it I was kind of fired up after that one I was like man this is so cool what a great story I mean the guy's like hitchhiking to go work on a potato farm in Maine and then comes back across the country hitchhiking and living on a trailer selling Christmas trees and bartending and doing real estate and selling women's shoes then working for the Oakland A's press secretary for Leon Panetta I mean gosh it's like it's one of those things where it's like he could be a nominee for the most interesting man in the world to replace the Dos Equis guy or something like that but anyway I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did now coming up on the next episode of the podcast I'm going to be doing a podcast from Oregon I'm not traveling to Chicagoland Speedway this week. I'm going to stay home, and I'm going to watch Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s debut on NBC along with the rest of you, see what he has to say. So there will still be one about the race, just won't be there at the track. 
Then coming up Tuesday, it's a 12 questions with Eric Almarola, who's having quite a nice season so far for Stuart Haas Racing. And next week's How I Got Here is an interesting personality. You may know him in NASCAR. It is Joey Meyer. He is the spotter for Brad Kozlowski as well as the pilot for Brad Kozlowski. So um, I will ask him how he got to be in that position. Thanks for all the great feedback on last week's How I Got Here podcast with Marlon Yoder. He was the car chief in the ARCA series who was raised Amish, later left the Amish, didn't know anything about racing growing up, didn't even know what a race car looked like or a racetrack, listened to uh, a pirated radio essentially on uh, MRN and started learning about racing that way. And then now he's moving up in the, in the racing world. So uh, it seemed like you guys really enjoyed that one. If you do enjoy these interviews, we'd love to have you on board as a patron. That's over at patreon.com slash Jeff underscore Gluck. That's how I get to the races. Um, that's how I make a living, eat, pay rent, all that stuff. People pledge whatever they want to per month, $5 a month, $10 a month, something like that for most people. And I'm proud to say I'm approaching 1,100 bosses there. I work directly for you guys, so that's been a lot of fun for me. So if you enjoy these interviews, please consider throwing some support that way. Anyway, time is valuable, so I appreciate your time taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I'm looking forward to talking to you on the next episode of the Untitled Jeff Buck Podcast. Bye, everybody. Thank you.